Is it his time? Yes! Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It. I'm Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. And nice to be back, Dill. Yeah, been a couple of weeks, huh? Yes, as we frantically work at our real jobs, desperately trying to make enough money and to be able to afford to make this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, the payroll is longer than you think. Yeah. And in between podcasts, we've managed to squeeze a master's in, in yep. November. Yeah, and a master's with a difference as well in November, like you said, so a different time of the year. And a master's with no fans or no patrons. Yes, no patrons. And only the second time, Bill, in the history of the master's that the trophy has been lifted with no patrons present. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the first time being when Patrick Reed won two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Here all week. Uh, yeah, yeah, here all week. Anyway, coming up on today's podcast, we speak to a man by the name of Doogie Donnelly. And I've always thought Doogie Donnelly to be a fascinating guy. Great broadcaster. And if you follow the European tour, he's a well-recognized and well-known voice and a face, presenter and broadcaster. And he's been in the game for years. And he's an all-rounder. And his career in broadcasting goes all the way back to his university days in Scotland. And there's a rather interesting story there, Si, to do with... The well-known comedian, Billy Connolly. Oh, and the Beatles as well. Well, Sir mm-hmm. Paul McCartney. Yeah. But hey, let's not spoil it. Let's get to our chat with Doogie Donnelly. We roped Dale in as well. Dale yep. usually presents Backspin. But of course, Dale being a commentator, he's commentated on the European tour for ages, knows Doogie extremely well. So myself, Dylan and Dale got together and had a chat to Doogie Donnelly. Well, Doogie Donnelly, welcome to the long and short of it. I know it's only been a few tournaments, but I just want to say right up front that I miss your dulcet tones wafting into my living room, <laughs> especially over the weekends when I'm lying in front of my TV watching the golf. <laughs> With a beer in front of you, no doubt. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. No, it's a pleasure to join you this morning. Doogie, most people, when they retire, they travel and they play golf. What the hell are you doing now? <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? No, I've, I've, first thing is, I guess I've, I've not retired. I'm, I'm no longer travelling with the European Tour, uh, but I certainly don't want to retire. And uh, were it not for COVID, I think I'd probably still be quite busy. But uh, it's been very flattering. I've had quite a few interesting offers since the, the, the word came out that I wasn't going to be travelling with the European Tour anymore. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to maybe getting back involved with... Uh, with some rugby and and, uh, and some football and so on. so But no, certainly not retiring. But I'll miss everyone on the tour, obviously. As we speak to you now, we find you at your home in Glen Eagles. Oh, that must be a tough life, Doogie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a beautiful autumnal morning. The leaves are falling. Uh, Scotland, as you know, fellas, is a country where it's cold and wet for about seven months of the year and, and then the winter sets in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's a beautiful morning, and uh, yeah, I'm very lucky we have this this house here, which uh, we we spend a lot of time. At. Our main home is still in, in Glasgow, but we spend a lot of time at, at Glen Eagles and playing a bit of golf and and walking Chester, who's my dog, by the way, not my wife. <laughs> oh well, it's 2020. I don't rule anything out. Uh, just out of interest, if you own a home at Glen Eagles, does that make you a member there? Uh, it doesn't automatically make me a member, unfortunately, no, but uh, I am a member. Uh, so, yeah, I do play some golf. Uh, the, the Kings and the Queens are, are my favourites, the two old traditional Glen Eagles courses. 
Uh, and of course, the, the, the newest of the, the three, if you like, the PGA Centenary course, which is where the Ryder Cup was played and the Solheim Cup, uh, which I must say are two of my, my favourite memories, obviously, to be able to, to walk to work and to watch two of the, the world's great uh, golf occasions to be played on your home course was, was, a, was a real thrill. All right, well, we'll come to all of that in a bit. There's loads of questions that we want to ask you today. Uh, before, we, before we talk golf specifically... I want to go back a bit. Actually, I want to go back a lot because many people might not know that you studied to be a lawyer at Strathclyde, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I should have had a proper job, fellas. Uh, but no, I, I never. I, I, I became a DJ for fun, like so many people do. Uh, uh, and I made a, a sort of life-changing discovery early on that uh, when you're the DJ, and you guys all know this, uh, women come and talk to you. You don't have to go and chat up women, uh, <laughs> even if it's only to ask you to play something. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed being a DJ. The local radio station in Glasgow had just started independent radio station away from the BBC called Radio Clyde. Uh, and I was persuaded one night after a few beers that I really should send them an audition tape, which I did. Uh, and it was accepted, and I started doing doing a morning radio show. Does that sound familiar? Vaguely. Um, <laughs> that's that's how it started. But all of that time, I thought, well, this is great fun. I'm enjoying it, but it's not going to be a career. I'm, I'm going to go back and become a lawyer, aren't I? Uh, but as a couple of years went past and I was enjoying it more and more, uh, then I got the chance to join the BBC to do, to do sports TV. And I never, ever did uh, use my degree or, or become a lawyer. And I guess it's a bit too late now, really. Now, Doogie, your, your time at university, um, am I right in saying that's when you first came across uh, the legendary Scottish comedian Billy Connolly? There's an interesting story there as well, isn't there? That's right, yes. Uh, Billy at that time, uh, the, I don't know, you guys might not remember, but the, there was a band called Steeler's Wheel, which is yes. partner. Stuck in the middle with me. That's exactly right, yeah, stuck in the middle with you. And Billy and Jerry were, were a, a duo known as the Humble Bums. That was how Billy started. Billy was the, the the banjo player and Jerry was the guitarist. And the introductions to the songs were getting longer and longer as Billy found his his, uh, his comedy technique. And they eventually split very amicably. And Jerry went off to form Steeler's Wheel and, as you say, had the big hit was stuck in the middle with you. And I always remember, I had booked him to appear at the folk club at university. I was the social secretary. And I booked Billy. I think we paid him £40 at the time which is, what, 400 rand or something like that. No, way more. Um, way, way, way more. <laughs> Hell of a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> that was... Uh, so anyway, we, that was that, that was how I first met Billy. And I remember him walking on stage and he stood there and uh, strummed the guitar and he said, so, Rafferty's in the top 10 in America with Stuck in the Middle with You and I'm in Strathclyde University Union. <laughs> and, <laughs> it was brilliant, it was it was only all months later that uh, he went on the Michael Parkinson show uh, here in the UK and uh, became a, an absolute superstar. But fortunately, we've we've kept in touch, and uh, I see him not regularly now because his health isn't great, and he he lives in the states. But we do keep in touch, and he's uh, one of one of my favourite people, and certainly my favourite comedian. Now, tell us a little bit about Sir Paul McCartney, the Sir Paul McCartney, because I remember reading that he was a huge fan of your radio show. Well, that, that again, that was, I mean, that, that was the beauty of, of, as you guys are, when you do radio and you get to meet all sorts of people, you get to meet your heroes a lot of the time. Uh, and Paul McCartney, I was a huge Beatles fan. 
uh, and I was uh, asked to go and interview Paul when he formed Wings after the Beatles had split and they were playing the, the big venue in Glasgow, the Glasgow Apollo, famous old uh, old rock venue. Uh, and I, it was doing two nights and my interview with him was on the second night. So I'd gone to the show the first night, which was terrific. And then the next night I had been allocated half an hour with him before he went on stage. So I went back to do him in the dressing room, to interview him in the dressing room. Linda was there and the rest of the band all getting ready for the gig. Uh, I was introduced with a record company rep. And then Linda said something which will always stay with me. She said, oh, Doogie Donnelly, I know that name. We listened to your radio show on the way to Campbellton, to our farm. <laughs> Made it all worthwhile. Magic. I mean, what an oh. endorsement. Paul McCartney says that he listens to your radio show. I mean, what a thrill that was. So we did we did the interview, and I knew I'd been given half an hour, but it seemed to be going well. We were chatting away, and I was kind of half looking at my watch, as you do, and I realised that I'd gone to 35 minutes and 40 minutes and 45 minutes, and still there was no, no sign that they wanted to wind it up. I wasn't going to wind it up, obviously, uh, but I knew from the night before that they went on stage, I think it was 8 o'clock, and it's now almost 10 to 8 and eventually the, well, the road manager or whatever stepped in and he said, well, really got to wind it up or you're due on stage. So we shook hands and said, thanks very much. And I went off with my little tape machine, uh, walked out of the dressing room and up the up the, 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 the corridor, if you like, and Paul McCartney walked on stage. And I thought, God, what a professional that is. He didn't even need five minutes to get his head together and get ready for the gig. He just said goodbye to me and walked straight on stage and launched into a two-hour show. Yeah, so, yeah, that was that was a real thrill, fellas, as I'm sure everyone will appreciate. Yeah, Doogie, I think it segues quite nicely to my next question, uh, is that I think golf fans in, in South Africa and, and across the world know you as a golf presenter stroke commentator, yet your repertoire is quite broad. I mean, there, there you are talking about interviewing Sir Paul McCartney, but also your, your sports presenting goes way beyond golf. Give us a little bit of background on that. Yes, it does. It, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a bit like, um, I suppose it's a bit like, like super sport in South Africa. They, they, they cover so many different sports. Um, and the BBC in, in Scotland, when I, I joined the BBC, again, at that time, there was no satellite television. There only was the, the national broadcaster. And they had everything. They had football, they had rugby, they had oh, every sport you could ever imagine. And I was young and enthusiastic, and uh, football was my main sport, I guess, at that time. So basically, young and enthusiastic, and then they would say things like, uh, do you know anything about snooker? And I would say, well, not really very much, but give me a week. And do you know anything about uh, curling or long bowls and all of those sports? And I was, as I say, I was young and keen, and I, I took them all on. And that's really what got me to you know, seven Olympics and four Commonwealth Games, doing all those different sports, uh, which was a huge thrill. It really was. I enjoyed it enormously. Now, Doogie, I believe that that presenting experience extended beyond just, just sport into, into various other entertainment avenues, such as being compare for Miss Scotland. Is that right? <laughs> God, you boys have done your research, haven't you? <laughs> I believe there's an I believe there's an interesting story about a, a 1970s glamour model called Fiona Richmond. Uh, do you want to talk us through through that and how that interview went? Oh gosh, um, yeah. Well, as as you know, you you turn nothing down, and for some reason, I get invited to compare a few. I mean, there's such an anachronism now. We don't have these kind of contests, but at the time, they were actually very innocent. Uh, the Miss Scotland and the 
or the, the various, what was it, Miss Stella Artois Lager and things like that. Um, and then I, the, the, actually the Fiona Richmond story was uh, was with the BBC. I would, they, they, eventually they gave me a, a TV chat show, uh, which again, I, I immediately pulled Billy Connolly in to do. So we, we did a special called yeah, Connolly, Connolly and Donnelly. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> but Fiona Richmond was a very well-known, uh, how would you describe her now? But she, she didn't wear many clothes, put it that way. Uh, what a good sport. But she was good. She was the daughter of a, a Church of Scotland, a Church of England vicar, uh, believe it or not, who <laughs> got into this very strange profession. And she came on my TV chat show, and we discussed her career. And uh, it's, it's, sadly, she's gone now. She, she she died a few years back. She was great fun. She really was very very funny. But yeah, that that was one to remember. Okay, let's get on to golf. You've been a commentator for a long, long time. I don't have the exact number of years in front of me here, but take us through the average day in the life of a golf commentator on tour? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, well, these, I mean, it's, yeah, I guess we would, we'd be, you'd be up fairly early breakfast, get down to the course, probably around about half past eight, nine o'clock, usual start time for the working day. We'd maybe be on air at 11, so there'd be a couple of hours. I used to have to do an Envision opening for the Golf Channel in America. They always wanted a sort of 45 seconds or a minute to say, hello, here we are at uh, Royal Johannesburg in Kensington. And it's around one of the Joe Berg Open, and uh, we're looking to watch Louis Tazen and Brandon, Brandon Grace and all that sort of stuff. So you would do that, and then I would go in and record the actual voiceover opening. I uh, would be on there for two hours usually. Uh, then there'd be a little bit of a break, uh, and then we'd come back to do the afternoon starters, which would be either two or three hours, uh, with my commentary colleagues all live, all unscripted, and I met and worked with so many of, I guess, my heroes. Uh, people that I'd watched play, people like Sam Torrance and Mark James and the great Tony Johnston, and, of course, Dale Hayes. I first met Hazy when I started coming out to South Africa to, to, to do the golf commentary. Hazy and Hutchie, what a double act. Well, speaking of Dale Hayes, he joins us now from Swartkop. Dale, welcome to the chat. It's good to be with you, Doogie. It's great to Great to be chatting to you as well. I, I think you're at Glen Eagles, is that right? Uh, yeah, we are. We're uh, enjoying and saying to the boys, it's a beautiful autumnal morning. It's, it's, it's lovely. So, uh, but hopefully going out for a, a game of golf later on. You know, coming from deepest, darkest Africa, you know, it's nice to sometimes hear how the, how the, the rich people live. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dale, I've been to I've been, I've been to your house, Dale. You're not doing too badly. <laughs> you know, you know, Doogie. It really is good. It's it's really good to have you on, and and you know, you've got obviously a wealth of experience, and I don't think anybody is more professional at what they do than than you are. And uh, you know, you obviously work very hard at it, etc. But um, you know, even even with that, you make mistakes now and again. <laughs> Okay, and I I want you to tell the story about you, Tony Johnson, and I at Carnoustie when when they did the top tracer. (laughs) You know, I thought for a minute there you were going to be nice to me, complimentary. (laughs) No chance. But I knew I knew there was going to be a sting in the tail, Hazy. There always is. Uh, yeah, the story at the Open in Carnoustie. Um, uh, as, as golf fans will know, we now have this wonderful new development called Top Tracer, which is like a ribbon that picks up the, the player's ball and shows the, the flight path, if you like, the, the, the swing path. So anyway, we're, we're chatting away and we're watching uh, Matsuyama and Woods. 
uh, and play. They were playing together in the, whatever round it was of the Open, and uh, we're comparing the two swings. So uh, up comes the top tracer, and we see Tiger's swing, higher ball flight. Hideki Matsuyama, slightly lower ball flight, both good shots, both straight down the middle. And I say, well, there they are. As you can see, there's a top trace of ball flights there. And uh, just in case you're confused at all, uh, the uh, Japanese is yellow and the American's black. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the colour of the ribbon. I promise you, that was the colour of the ribbon. Oh, and uh, I, I, honestly, Dale was in the commentary box with me, along with, I can't remember who, Thomas Bjorn I might have been, but they, they didn't speak for about five minutes. They were kind of, <laughs> well, as you know when you're live, fellas, when you say these things, you don't realise what you've said for a few seconds. And then it suddenly hit me and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> well, if you manage to shut Hayes up, you've done well. <laughs> yeah, that's not easily done. Not easily done. You know, Doogie, that's one of the things that I really, really liked about about you guys in the commentary box is that there seemed to be this great camaraderie, this, such a great vibe in the commentary box. Like everyone in there were friends. And was that generally the case? Yes, it was. It genuinely was. <clears throat> Excuse me. Absolutely. I mean, I, I became, and I, I hope still am, very good friends with Dale and with, with Hutchie, with Tony Johnston, uh, with Sam Torrance, Mark James. Uh, there were so many of us, and we went out for dinner every night. We told old stories. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. What a job. Now, Doogie, I want to get some of your thoughts on, on your time involved with the European Tour and perhaps, you know, pick out some, some standout moments, some standout players. I mean, you know, during your time, you know, legends such as Sevi Ballesteros, Nick Faldo, Bernard Langer, Colin Montgomery have dominated the, you know, the European Tour back in the 80s and 90s. Um, who stands out for you as the greatest player that you've seen or interacted with? I've always been a huge Jack Nicholas fan. I mean, growing up as a as a teenager, a young golfer, I mean, I, I thought Jack Nicholas was was very very special. And of course, he is still is very special. So Jack would be the the number one, I suppose. Of the, I always was a, a big fan of the the Scottish players, and we're lucky enough to have some outstanding Scottish players like Sam Torrance, like Sandy Lyle. I was a big fan of of Sandy's. Yeah. Uh, and you know, obviously Monty, who became became quite a good friend. I even introduced him to one of his wives. <laughs> uh, if, it, if it's an uh, earlier, earlier one, then he's probably not thanking you. <laughs> uh, well, his ex-wife is still speaking to me. That's the more important part. And, and obviously Seve. You're quite right to mention Seve because as, as Dale knows, he was around the European tour when Seve first came out. Uh, and he was... He had just such enormous charisma. We're talking earlier about people like Paul McCartney and Billy Conley that I've been lucky enough to work with. And these people are special. They do have a charisma, which very few people are blessed with. Seve had that, apart from being a wonderful golfer. And in many, many ways, he really was the, the secret of the European Tour success. There were five great players emerged at the same time. The European Tour were enormously fortunate and that we had Seve, we had Langer, we had Lyle, we had Faldo, and we had Woosnam. And they were all born within a year of each other. It's astonishing, isn't it? And they all went on to become the golfers that they were, Ryder Cup players, major champions. And really that was the, the secret of the, the success of the European Tour, which obviously went on to, um, to, to, to lead to the domination we've enjoyed at the Ryder Cup recently. Yeah. Uh, 
Talk to us a little bit about the evolution of the European tour, Doogie, because, you know, I, I look back at some older footage, grainy footage from the mid-90s, and you look at what Dubai was like and some of the places that the European tour used to travel to. And you, you were there with the tour as it grew. And today, I mean, it really is a global tour. Yes, it is. And and that's been one of the, the, the great joys that when, when, when Dale played, for example, the European tour didn't start until around Easter time. It stayed mainly in Europe. Uh, and finished in September, October time. So that, that's the way that the tour was. And then suddenly we started going to South Africa and to the Middle East and to the Far East. And to now we, we go to India and it, it's become a, a real worldwide tour. Uh, and the co-sanctioned events, are, for me, have always been among the highlights. I mean, particularly, I'm not saying this just because I'm, I'm talking to you guys, but South Africa has always been my, my favorite venue to visit. Uh, I've had great, great friends in South Africa, wonderful golf courses. And we've had so many memories of the great South African players that emerged as well. And that was hugely to the, the European tour's benefit and, and hopefully to golf in South Africa as well. Dale, Doogie touches on, on, on the rich history of South African golf and, and its involvement in the European tour. And, you, and we've seen the, the, the fantastic players who've featured there, your Elses, your Hursons, you know, younger generation, uh, such as, uh, you know, Van Rooyen and Oosthuizen and now, and, and we've got Seaford Harding, Tech, you know, Harding coming through. But go back to you know, your time on, on the European tour and let's, Let's not forget that Dale Hayes was a European Tour Order of Merit winner back in, was it 1975, Dale? 75, yeah. You know, South Africa, we had a lot of South African players who played very well on the European Tour. And, uh, you know, Hugh Bayocchi won, won many tournaments on the European Tour. Um, Mark McNulty, uh, Tony Johnston, uh, John Bland, a name that a lot of people wouldn't probably remember, Teddy Britz, and of course, Simon Hobday. You know, so there were probably, you know, 10, 10 or so South Africans that were always kind of, you know, high up in tournaments and, and featuring in tournaments. Then you had the Australians like Jack Newton and Bob Shearer and uh, Stu again. And then, of course, when in 1977, Greg Norman came on the scene. So, you know, then you had the European player, players as well, like uh, obviously Seve, Seve led many, many great players that came out of Spain at that time. And then, of course, Bernard Langer. You know, the European tour was so wonderful because you had all these different players. You had South Americans like Vincente Fernandez of Florentina Molina, um, terrific players. That, And, of course, Roberto de Vicenza um, that played week in and week out in Europe. So you met so many different people, so many different cultures. You played in all these different countries. You know, one week could be Sweden. The next week could be, it would be England. Next week it would be Germany. Next week Switzerland. Oh, it was, it was unbelievable. And, you know, I think we got to enjoy a lot more of, of that than I think the current players do. You know, the current players, they jet in, play the tournament and jet out, you know, and they don't really mix. They don't, they don't go to functions. They don't do any of those kind of things that, that were kind of the norm in my day. So, you know, in a lot of, lot of ways, you know, the tour was so much more fun because there wasn't that much money. You could afford to have fun. So, you know, uh, it was so much more fun then than it is today. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Doogie, Doogie would have been around, but not that, at that time televised. The tournaments weren't televised, so uh, he wasn't working for television at that time. I'm not insinuating, Doogie, that you're nearly as old as me. But <laughs> <laughs> I used to always go to the Open every year, and when it, when it was Scotland, the first Open I ever saw, my, my dad and I went to Turnbury for the, the famous Duel in the Sun. Uh, with Tom Watson. Wow, 77. Uh, that was my first, mm. 
77, Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas, and that is still one of the greatest opens of all time. And and that was the very first one that I, I went to live. It's amazing how it works out. But I've got to say, Dale, I mean, I, I, I owe you a great, uh, so many debts of gratitude for you, you and Alison's hospitality every time I come to South Africa. But I remember one conversation we had, and I said I'd never met Simon Hobday. I'd heard all the stories about Simon, and uh, they are some of the best stories I've ever heard in a golfing context. And you said, well, we'll invite him for dinner and you can come round. And you did. Uh, and we had dinner at your house in, at, uh, in Pretoria. Uh, and that was the first time I met Simon. We played golf that afternoon at Swart Cup. Uh, and I don't know what age Simon was at the time. He was, he was certainly in his mid-70s. Uh, and he beat his age as easily as you've ever seen. And I can still see and hear his ball striking. He was not only a terrific golfer, but one of the funniest men you've ever met. I mean, some of the Hobday stories, which I'm... I'm sure the boys have all heard, but uh, I could listen to them all day long. Yeah, uh, Dale's stories about Simon Hobday are absolutely hilarious. Just as his chirps about oh. Dennis Hutchinson are so, so funny. And I remember phoning Dale once and, and saying to me, he's just looked at an early photograph of Dennis Hutchinson. He's just found it. It's a cave painting. <laughs> <laughs> so Dale, Dale and his yarns are... Uh, are infamous. <laughs> <laughs> They're a great pair. Hayes and Hutchie. Hayes, Hutchie and Hobby. And of yeah. course, they've, they've done the, the book now with most of the best stories, which if anyone listening doesn't have the book, then please get hold of it. It's, it's wonderful. Doogie, while we're, to- while we're talking about those sort of stories, lovely story that you tell against yourself about uh, the uh, press conference that you attended with Tony Finnau. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh gosh, yes. Yeah. So this was another. This is we were in China at the time doing the WGC HSBC, and Tony Fina had only fairly recently emerged, and uh, he's got a quite an interesting backstory. That Tony Fina, I mean, now a Ryder Cup player, of course, and one of the best players in the world, but he doesn't really have a golfing background in the way that so many of the players do. Uh, he comes from a very humble background. I think he was one of about seven kids. His dad was a baggage handler at Salt Lake City Airport in the States. Yep. Uh, nobody played golf, but it was a little par three course at the end of their road. And uh, Tony and his brother used to go down and look through the fence at the, you know, the guys playing golf at this par three course. And they thought, I quite like the look of this game. So they showed a bit of interest. The dad, as dads do, immediately went off, got an old piece of carpet, laid it down in the family basement, and an old mattress which he suspended from the rafters of the basement. Uh, and he, they found some golf balls from somewhere, some old clubs. And Tony Fino and his brother started hitting balls into the mattress from this piece of carpet in the family basement, which is how he started, which is a great story. So I'm launched into this story on the TV commentary. Uh, and I remember I'm sitting next to uh, Frank Nobolo and Dom Boulay, my great friend from Hong Kong, who's our Asian tour commentator. And the three of us are doing the commentary. And I said, that's a great, so that's how Tony Fino started to play golf. And, you know, to this day, he still finds an enormously evocative sound, that sound of his balls hitting the mattress. It was a bit like the, the, the top tracer story. You, you see it. And, yeah, it's, it's mentioned and you all can't get it back. Things. It's out, it's done, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and Nobolo and Bule, uh, they, they were in bits. They were, they were running down their cheeks. It was, yeah, one of my better lines, I think. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Doogie, what about some of your better, or perhaps some of your most, most difficult interviews over the years? And, and who have you found to be the most difficult interview from a golf point of view in your time uh, on the European tour? You, you know what, fellas? Uh, we're very lucky in golf because almost always golfers are happy to talk and they're articulate and they're, they're never really difficult. I mean, I can tell you about some football players, even some rugby players who were much more difficult than, than the golfers. Uh, Greg Norman, I, I didn't fall out with Greg, but uh, I remember one open I was doing the 18th Green interviews and Greg from memory had shot something like 67 or 68, but he'd bogeyed 17 and 18. So he comes off, he's not very happy, and stupidly, my opening line, it was my fault entirely. I said, well, Greg, that was a great round of goal, but you maybe feel that it could have been even better, referring to the, 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 the two late bogeys. And he just looked at me and said, is that not good enough? Is 67 round Turnberry or whatever it was not good enough? What do you people expect of me? And I said, no, 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 Greg, no, I'm not, I'm not having a go. I'm not having a go. <laughs> you he misunderstand. Was, you know, Greg gets, he, he was he'd taken offence. He, was, he, was, he wasn't happy at all. Um, but to be fair, I mean, the next day he came in and I said, I'm sorry, but he said, no, listen, I thought about it afterwards. He said, it was my fault. I, I, I overreacted, but I was just hot after the, the two late bogeys. But there have been very few stories like that. I mean, Darren Clark sometimes uh, could be a little bit prickly. I mean, anybody would be. Anybody who's finished bogey-bogey is not going to be a particularly good interviewee. And then on the other hand, you've got somebody like David Fairty in his playing days. And I remember, again, it was 18th Green interview at the Open. And Fairty had had to qualify to play in the Open. So he'd played in the qualifiers so two rounds earlier in the week of the Open on the Monday and Tuesday. And he'd shot 76 in the first round and 66 in the second. So uh, he qualified to play in the Open. So I asked him, well, that, David, that's fantastic. You've made it. You're playing in the Open. What was the difference between those those two rounds? And he said, 10 shots, Doogie. <laughs> <laughs> Typical fairity, yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, uh, stupid question. I asked for it. <laughs> uh, Doogie, would you, you mentioned football and rugby and the other sports you've covered. Would you include Sir Alex Ferguson in there as, as one of your more difficult interviews? Uh, not at all. No, absolutely the opposite, believe it or not, because, again, very lucky in those early days at the, the BBC. I mean, and, uh, Alex, as he was then, was manager of Aberdeen in Scotland who went on to win a, a European trophy uh, before he got the job at Manchester United. And again, a little bit like Conley. This is terrible name dropping, but it's just... Go ahead. Lucky no, we set, we set you up for it. Go ahead. <laughs> I know. But Alex, again, is uh, we, we, we have stayed friends and he was kind enough to... He did a theatre tour when he when he launched his autobiography, and he asked me to do the theatre tour with him and to do the interview on stage, which, uh, as you can imagine, particularly the one in Glasgow, because he was born in Glasgow and was born just across the river from the exhibition centre, just across the River Clyde. Uh, and I introduced him. I said, "What a thrill this is to you know Alex Ferguson is back home again, literally just across the river from where he was he was brought up by the shipyards. Very again a humble background to." Uh, to go on to achieve what he did. So, no, Alex was never difficult. Uh, he could be with, again, if you ask the wrong question, if you ask a silly question, then I think you're entitled to get a little bit of a slap. But maybe I was lucky. I, I never managed to ask a, ask a silly question of him. Yeah, I'm just going through my list of questions here, hoping just, that... Just, just uh, maybe, maybe leave, the, maybe leave the silly questions out, Simon. Thank you very much. Yeah. Doogie, Dale, I'm interested to get both your thoughts on this. And it's where the, where the European tour is at the moment. And obviously it's been an unprecedented year. 
I think we saw something like six events cancelled and nine postponed. Devastating from a TV revenue perspective. No Ryder Cup this year either, which we know the tour relies heavily on. Is it panic stations there, do you think? Oh, I don't know if it's panic stations. It's not far short of panic stations. and There are major financial issues, clearly. Um, uh, a lot of the sponsors have been very loyal and stayed with the tour, but as we all know, uh, businesses worldwide are being affected dreadfully. People are losing their jobs. Businesses are uh, are going into liquidation, and, and that kind of puts it in perspective. So, the, yeah, the, the European tour and tours all over the world are, well, maybe apart from the States, they seem to have more money than they know what to do with, and I think they just signed a a massive new TV contract just before COVID, so they get very, very lucky. Uh, yeah, these are tough times, and we can only <clears throat> excuse me, we can only hope that uh, that eventually we do get uh, the vaccine for this. But I think that's probably the only thing that will actually change things dramatically, uh, and that 2021 we can get underway with a European tour and back to where we were. And I hope we'll be coming back to South Africa, and we'll be traveling back to the Middle East and to all the places that we've enjoyed going to. But, no, it, it's tough, and uh, the players are playing their part. They're now playing for much, much smaller prize funds than they've, they've been used to. There's none of the nice little luxuries they're used to, like courtesy cars and players' lounges. Everybody has to live within the biosecure bubble, uh, which, let me tell you, having done a few of them, is not really a whole lot of fun. But that's the reality of it, and at least we're playing golf. Uh, a lot of sports haven't been able to get up and going again, certainly without spectators. So, yeah, it's tough, fellas, but we have to stay optimistic, don't we? Yeah, Doogie, I, you know, I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. And, and absolutely, the European tour must be reeling financially. But, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there are some positives. And, and I think one of the positives is that um, this has really got the players back and, and they're supporting the tour. You know, the players have, have, have been so positive about the events that, that the European Tour have put on so far, the fact that they've been able to put on those events. And, uh, you know, they've got, they've got really good support. And, and so I look forward to next year, you know, if they can get, uh, you know, a reasonable tour going for, for 2021, I think you'll get a lot more support from, uh, from the players. I think they'll try and play as much as they can to support the tournaments. Uh, I'm sure the Ryder Cup will take place and hopefully the Ryder Cup, uh, you know, is is really close again. You know, obviously we pull for Europe, so, you know, hopefully hopefully they win the Ryder Cup. But, I mean, I don't think it, it, I don't think that's essential. I think just the fact that, that if it's close again and it's exciting, I know that people around the golf club here are all watching golf. They're watching golf as much as they can. So, you know, there is an interest. We've seen a lot more people playing the game of golf, and that's been in America, Australia, South Africa, Britain, everywhere. People are just, you know, just want to get out on the golf course and play. So the interest is there uh, right now, and so I think I think there are going to be some positives. And you know, let's just hope that um, there's not a second wave or a third wave of this of this COVID thing, and they're able to get tournaments going from you know February or March next year. We're able to get a, a proper tour going. Absolutely, let's hope so. Interested to get both your takes on, on the Rolex series and, and the race to Dubai. Do you think it's worked the way they envisaged it working? 
Uh, oh, I think I think it has. Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's a massive prize funds. Uh, we've had a support from, interestingly, some of the American players. When Patrick Reed, whatever you think of Patrick Reed, has been a great supporter of the European Tour. Uh, a few of the few of the American boys are now coming over and, and playing, particularly at the end of their season. Uh, Rolex are one of the supporters, along with you know BMW and some of the others who have stuck with the tour and and and, and showed their loyalty. Um, yeah, I, I think it's fantastic for the players to be playing for that much money, but it also, I think, lets them see how lucky they have been over the years. Before COVID hit, I mean, players, I mean, you look back at what Dale used to play with, and the players of his era, who were wonderful players, but they weren't able to make the kind of money, the life-changing money that the guys do now. And the Rolex series is very much part of that. And uh, they've been real highlights, the, the Scottish Open, the Irish Open, the BMW Championship. Uh, at Wentworth and then even the Italian Open as a Rolex event and so on and that they do have an extra prestige about them there's no doubt about it Doogie I asked that question with the Nedbank Golf Challenge in mind our biggest tournament down here in South Africa and it is a Rolex series event but recently we haven't seen the calibre of fields that we probably would expect for an event of this magnitude, particularly now that they've moved it towards the end of the race to Dubai so there are lots of points and there is a lot of cash available as well. Yet, for whatever reason, we don't see the quality of player that we would expect to see at an event of this nature. That's been one of the disappointments, and, and Dale and I have talked about that. Well, we've all talked about that, that the Ned Bank, which is, uh, is uh, well, Africa's major, um, and it's a fantastic event and a fantastic venue, and I think uh, they have not had the support that they were entitled to think they should have had from the top players. Uh, yes, it's at the end of what's been a long year for them, but a lot of these players would start off by playing in the SA Open or they'll be playing in the Joburg Open or the Africa Open or uh, coming out and playing in the at Durban Country Club in the Volvo event. Uh, and I think a lot of them should really be giving back more than, I'm not going to name many, name many names, but I think that the Ned Bank have been entitled to expect a little more support from the players. I know the European Tour has been trying so hard and they've been sitting down with the players and doing a little bit of arm twisting. I mean, goodness me, you need your arm twisted to come to South Africa in the middle of South African summer and stay at stay at, uh, at Sun City. It's ridiculous, but I think they have a complaint there. And again, that's one of the things I would like to see change, that players will start to appreciate how lucky they are to have wonderful tournaments to play in. And okay, they're a little bit tired. It's been a long season, but come on. Come out and play golf, fellas. Doogie, I know you've got other stuff to do, so we won't keep you too much longer, but I just want to get your thoughts as well as Dale's. And it is a general question about where you two think the game is at right now. I've read recently people comparing Bryson DeChambeau's win at the US Open, particularly the way he went about winning, calling it as big a watershed moment for the game of golf as Tiger winning at Augusta back in 1997 and the implications of that. Would you two agree with this? Oh, that's, that's, that's an interesting one. The, the, the Bryson win has certainly got everyone talking. Uh, but then again, we thought Jordan Spieth was going to be the next Tiger, and poor Jordan's struggling with his game now. Very few players completely dominate golf the way that, that Jack Nicholas did and Tiger Woods did. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I admire Bryson DeChambeau enormously for taking the approach he has. I don't think it's for everyone. Um, and I don't think it will affect most of us who play the game for fun and, and are amateur golfers. Um, but I think it's got the other pros thinking about it as well. But I just hate the thought of the great old golf courses around the world 
being reduced to a 350-yard drive and a nine-iron or a wedge. And, you know, I, I just think that's that it's a game of infinite subtlety and variety. And that's one of the reasons why we love golf. And if you remove so much of that variety and reduce it just to, well, what do they call it, bomb and gouge? I think that the game misses out. But we're probably only talking about the very top level if it happens. I don't see it happening at Swatcop or at any other of the uh, the courses that people go and play for the the regular weekly game. Bryson is uh, what he's done has been very interesting because you know he's come up with with a whole bunch of unique uh, changes uh, to make to make himself different. One length golf clubs being something the, you know the way he holds a putter, the fact that his putter's got more loft than his driver, you know the the way he's built up his body, he's. You know, you've got to admire the belief that he has in what he's doing, and and I I, I think it's I think he, what he's done has been has been amazing. I worry uh, about how long he can keep it up, how long that he, he you know he he doesn't drive the ball that straight. You know, you compare him to Rory, maybe he's longer than Rory now, but he, you know he's not nearly the, as good a driver as Rory is. Not not even close. So. You know, you wonder how long he can keep this up for and how long his body's going to last. That would be my major concern is how long his body's going to last because he's done something to his body that, you know, no golfer's done before. And I would be worried about that. I'd also be worried, you know, not worried. I, it'll be interesting to see how, how well he continues to putt because that's been the difference with, uh, with Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth's driving was never very good, and I think it got a little bit worse. But also, he started missing a few putts. Mm. You know, from from 12 feet out, he was unbelievably good putter. His short putting wasn't very good, but his his middle range and long putting was unbelievable. Now, Bryson in that tournament, you know, they all talk about the way he drove the ball, but he putted unbelievably well as well. I'm not sure if he was a number one in putting, but he was certainly right at the top of the list in putting. So that is going to be that is going to be the the you know what what is going to determine whether or not he's able to stay at the top, and, and I agree one hundred percent with Doogie. The great champions like Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, Bobby Jones, and um, and Tiger, they don't come along very often. They really don't come along very often, and you know I don't think to be honest, I don't think Bryson's one of them. I don't think he's going to join that list. Doogie, before we let you go, I have to ask you, during your commentating days, and I know you have to call it as you see it and be as impartial as you can, but were you ever secretly rooting for a particular player? A Scott, perhaps? Uh, oh, yes, yeah. I mean, yes, secretly. I mean, that's uh, and that BBC training. You had to be completely neutral and unbiased, obviously, and, and that, I think that's probably right. But yeah. I think it's forgiven uh, by by, it'd be strange if I wasn't pulling for a Scott to win or Dale wasn't pulling for a South African to win. Uh, we were a bit more subtle about it. Hutchie was never subtle. Hutchie just <laughs> cheered us. No, he wasn't. Um, <laughs> and we loved them all the more for it. One of the great, I mean, I've, as we've said this uh, several times, I've been so lucky in my career that uh, one of the things I, I really, really treasure is being able to, uh, to be there when Paul Laurie won the Open at Canusti in 1999, and to interview Paul on the on the 18th green, uh, with the rain beginning to fall after that fabulous final day and the playoff and Jean Van der Velde and all of that, uh, and I had met Paul as a young pro eight years before when he first got his European Tour card, 
And I'd gone off to do a little interview sort of as part of a, a golf documentary thing we were doing. And so I'd known him that long. And uh, to, to then see him standing there on the 18th green at Canoste with a claret jug in his hand, that, that, was, that was a wonderful memory. And there's, there's not much that I've, I've seen and done in golf that, uh, that will touch that. That really was very, very special. Doogie, can you imagine, just set, just set your imagination free and imagine Hachi commentating on a tournament that Bobby Locke was playing in? Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Well, that, that's that, Hachi talking about Bobby Locke, I, I just used to love listening to because uh, the greatest putter of all time, and I know you probably agree with that, Dale, as well, but uh, no, but Bobby did absolutely amazing things in the game of golf, and to hear... Hutchie especially talking about him was was something I'll always remember. Doogie, it's been magical chatting to you. Uh, I Like I said at the beginning of this conversation, I really, I, I loved listening to you over the years. Uh, we'll, we'll miss you on our on our TVs week in, week out, but glad to hear that, that you're doing well and that you haven't fully hung up the microphone yet. Oh, absolutely not. And, and one of these days, I will definitely get back out of South Africa, I promise you. The long and short of it. For it at eight, and the water made his par. Oh, brilliant. That is precision play. That was worth waiting for. That's a lovely birdie. That's a wonderful shot by Tony Finnau. He'll knock that in for a par five, and that's a great result for the leader. It's a great shot by Xander Schauffele. Birdie, birdie, finish. Coming up on the next episode of The Long and Short of It. Watching someone like Rory McIlroy walk out of your life and another guy that was with you for a very long time, 24 years, Lee Westwood. You know, how are things now between the two of you? That was, that was really tough. Um, that was a set of circumstances that happens in people's divorces. The, the worst part of the Lee breakup for me was the fact that he was just about my best friend and suddenly was no friend at all and, and still really isn't. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and read this podcast. Until next time.